Today on episode number 803 of CXO Talk, we're discussing how to lead and manage enterprise AI projects. We're speaking with Yav Bajanov from the Harvard Business School, and my esteemed guest co-host is Q Harrison Terry. My research is on AI strategy and operations. So what that basically means is I work with organizations to help them overcome the operational and methodological challenges that they face in implementing AI uh, within their whole organization. So pretty much everything we're going to be talking about today. Yav, when we talk about an AI project, what actually do we mean? And how is this any different from other kinds of technology projects? AI projects fall within two buckets. One is internal facing and the other is external facing. So internal facing uh, projects are ones which are designed to help employees do their job better. So for example, this could be like lead recommendation, it could be supply chain optimizations, or really anything that a company's employees interact with. And then external facing projects, those are projects, AI projects, which are deployed where the end user is actually the company's customer. So this is like Netflix's recommendation engine, uh, chat GPT, and pretty much you know, everything that you see around you that's leveraging AI. So that's sort of high level what an AI project is. And there was a second part to your question, which is what's different about AI projects? Why is this not your traditional IT project that we've been dealing with for what, 20, 30 plus years? Well, there's one big fundamental difference here, and that is that AI is random. And what that means is that, Michael, if you open up your chat GPT and you ask it a question, and I open up my chat GPT, I ask the same question, and Q opens up his chat GPT, he asks the same questions, we're gonna get three different answers. So even though that seems like a small change, it actually has major implications for the whole project, right? This inherent randomness essentially makes things much, much harder to deal with. AI today is very reminiscent of cloud computing, uh, as we think of, as we could think about it in 2010, which shift should I think about? Because it seems like if I'm still implementing my cloud strategy or that migration, and then AI pops up and I've got AI projects to maintain, you know, one of the things I'm wondering is like, do you run them on-prem where the data is really good or should everything just finish? Should we finish the transition to the cloud and then begin with AI because data is such an integral part of it? This is really thinking about sort of the overall strategy, the AI strategy the companies have. Now, I think what's become a standard is that you need to have the cloud infrastructure in order to be able to leverage AI, because to use AI, you need data. And what companies are doing now, uh, they're transitioning to the cloud. That's where all of their data is going to be stored. So I kind of think of it as this is all part of you know that big digital transformation that many companies are undergoing. And one of the motivations for that actually is to be able to develop and deploy AI because AI is the thing that actually removes the human bottleneck, leads to efficiencies, so really allows you to optimize your operations. But at the same time, in the future, it's going to enable completely new business models. And this is the big thing that is, I think, quite different from cloud. Cloud is a tool. It allows you to really sort of scale your operations and of course if you're a cloud provider you have your you know you have your new business model but for most companies it's not really redesigning their whole uh, value proposition whereas that's what AI can essentially do for you so so I kind of see it as like cloud is a necessary 
and it's part of the digital transformation, that's what's going to become um, the foundational thing that you need to have. But AI is the thing that's really going to transform your organization. This is right off the tails of NVIDIA's recent earnings calls, which I'm sure you're familiar with. $13.5 billion in, in revenue, $6 billion of that in profit, largely driven by these cloud uh, com- these cloud computing providers, the AWSs, the Azures, the GCPs, and their shift from general computing to accelerated computing where they can supply their customers with AI. Uh, you bring up a good point. Like, as that shift happens, you know, what, what, what's the mindset that I need as, a, as an enterprise leader to have and maintain? Because this isn't an instance where we go to the cloud and we're just moving one file that was traditionally stored offline to online. This is like, if I get this right, I literally can have a 24% increase in uh, the performance at my company or my organization instantly. And that's, that's absurd. And we have, we, have records, we have records of that already. It's really easy to sort of look at this high level and be like, I need to have a successful AI strategy, right? But it all actually begins with AI projects. And what I would advise leaders is, of course, have your high-level strategy that you're going to improve your operations, you're going to redesign your business model. That's going to come down the line. But what you need to do right now is ensure that every single one of your AI projects begins from inception to uh, it gets built successfully, it gets evaluated, it's shown to add real value, then it's actually being adopted, and then it sort of moves into the steady state of management. So that's really the big takeaway for me is, um, and, you know, have that big strategy, but really focus on each, every single project. And this is one of the things, right, that uh, we wanted to talk about today is there's a, a lot of these AI projects fail, right? Because it's not as simple as just taking something that's offline, putting it online. We can do the cloud transition. It's really hard. It's really costly. But when it comes to AI projects, most of them tend to fail. So really, how do you, what I would encourage leaders to think about is to do to focus on each project and ensure that they can implement that successfully. So that would be my big, uh, big difference here. What you're just describing, the issue of AI projects and succeeding with these projects, there's, there's an inherent marketing problem, mm. which is everybody loves talking about AI and the broad strategy. And, and as Q was saying, we're going to be in the cloud. And now you're kind of raining on our parade because you're saying, well, we need to focus on this as a project. And, you know, we're strategists and that's not what we want to do. Well, here's the thing. Around 80% of AI projects fail. That's a shocking number. If you compare this to sort of big IT projects, the number was somewhere in the 40%. So twice as many as of those initiatives fail. And this is extremely costly, right? Because if you think about, if you want to deploy AI, you need to invest in the data. It needs to be on the cloud. That's not cheap. You need to hire the right team. AI engineers are very expensive. You need to have the right computation. We're speaking about NVIDIA. Those chips are not cheap, right? If you want to do large-scale computing, it's extremely expensive. So if you have this failure rate where the vast majority of AI projects you're working on are not going to be successful, they're not going to pay off, 
Well, not only do you lose the money, you lose the momentum, you lose the organizational trust, and then companies start to doubt if they can even do this. So that's why I like to, of course, the strategy is super important and you want to think about that big picture. But if you can't deliver on a project, you're not going to get anywhere. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button on the CXO Talk website. So I'm hearing two distinct differences between AI projects and traditional IT projects. Number one is the uncertain nature of the results that yeah. AI produces. And number two is the nature of the infrastructure requires tremendous and specialized compute. Yes. IT projects, you know, if you're, if you're running business process software, you need fast computers and a database, but with AI, you need, you know, you, you're, you need GPUs and, and all of that uh, data infrastructure at a, at a very high level. So is that an accurate way of looking at it, Yav? There's one extra piece of this puzzle that's quite different between IT and AI projects, and that's really how you drive adoption. Um, and, and, and this actually becomes really challenging because people don't really understand AI, they don't understand the uncertainty. So when it comes to actually getting people to use it, that can be another big failure point. And of course, we've learned a lot from, uh, from the IT industry in terms of how you do change management. And that's all really, really useful information, but it still doesn't tackle that. How do you build trust between a human and an AI? Right? That's a whole new uh, area of research that's emerging right now. So in addition to those two, I think that's the third big difference. You have also this knowledge that 80% of AI projects fail. 80% yeah. is a large number. And yet we're seeing every organization in, in various industries, whether it be healthcare, media and entertainment, logistics, I mean, you name it, AI is being thrown into it and it's being looked at as the savior. But with such a hard, with such a large number, 80% is large. Why should I be running to, towards this AI revolution or transformation? Absolutely. I mean, it's that 20% that's adding tremendous value. And that 20% is completely transformative because it completely removes the human bottleneck. So it allows you to have scale that's completely unprecedented. Uh, if you look at companies like Ant Financial in China, they're, they have more customers than any of the big banks in the US and Europe. And they have a fraction of their employees. And yet they're still able to serve those customers effectively. And they do that because of algorithms. So even though you have this really high failure rate, and maybe I should just quantify this a little bit. Um, I'm speaking sort of failure in a really broad term here. So of course, it's the failure where, uh, you know, you don't have the right data, you can't even build the product. But I'm also including projects which just failed to deliver on the promised value, right? So maybe you built it, you deployed it, and then only... 10% of your, your employees ended up using this product. So it's not really adding that much value to the whole organization, or you really sort of overestimated uh, how useful this product is. And then people, um, you know, you don't really get the ROI on that. So that sort of goes into that 80% number. So, you know, that's why you're seeing it. And one thing I've noticed actually is a lot of companies are happy to talk about uh, their AI initiatives and very few of them uh, are able to really quantify and say, this is how much value that actually added. A lot of them are just like, hey, we have this, uh, 
trust us, it adds value. But if you look down, it doesn't actually give you a specific number. So that's where, yeah, that's the 80%. This intersection of value and failure is quite interesting to me. In order to accomplish the value that Q. Harrison was uh, referencing earlier, this this real leap of value, not just yes. incremental, seems to me you need to have a uh, a new infrastructure, as we were just talking. Okay, you need to have the right infrastructure, but and here's the hard part: you need to have a new culture. Yeah. Because organizations, most organizations are not optimized for great leaps in value. We're going to innovate at a rapid clip and we're going to change everything we're going to do and we're going to disrupt what we're doing, right? Yeah. Organizations are focused on process and you as the operations expert know that more than anybody else. So what, how do we handle that? The first one is you have to think really hard about which projects you're going after. And that means you have to think about both the feasibility and the impact of that project. And this is where you need leaders that are versed in both sort of the technical um, know-how around AI and data science, but also the business know-how. And, and let me just sort of try to make this a little bit more concrete, right? If you have a leader who's sort of leading your AI organization that's really good at the technical aspect of it, they're going to focus on projects which are very feasible that can be done, but they might not be impactful because they don't really understand the nature of the business. They don't understand the processes the company has in place and how they're going to plug into that. On the flip side, if you have a leader that's only versed in the domain knowledge, they understand the business through and through, they're going to identify those really high impact projects, but they're just not going to be feasible, right? So they want, you know, that will lead to a failure because they'll pick the best project, they'll start working on it, and then six months down the line, they will have nothing to show because they didn't understand that maybe this isn't even an AI project, maybe they don't have the right data, right? So it comes to, I think, the culture piece begins with the leadership, right? You need to have uh, a leader that deeply understands the domain knowledge and the technical expertise. And this is why I'm starting to see a lot more companies creating this role of the chief AI officer, because that's a person who has, you know, bridges uh, the gap and, and they can be a big part of transforming the organization's culture. And then there's one other piece, which I think often gets really forgotten. And, and I want to call it out here, uh, which is actually the processes around developing AI. Right now, when you go to most organization, the AI uh, development process very much looks like the pre-industrial age. Uh, you have these amazing engineers and experts running around doing everything from data collection, data storage, to building the thing, to even delivering it to you, right? So what, and that process is extremely inefficient, extremely prone to mistakes, uh, and just not the right way of developing algorithms. And what you've started to see now is a few of the tech leaders and a few of the sort of um, companies that have undergone a digital transformation, they've started to build what my colleagues, uh, Marco Ansetti and Karim Lakani, who you've actually had as a guest here a little while ago, uh, called the AI factory, right? So this is basically a representation of the company's operating model where data is at the heart of it, and then it makes it really easy to develop and scale AI um, for every use case. So 
just to sort of summarize that, right, you have the culture piece, but then you also have the actual processes in terms of how you're going to build that AI that is absolutely critical. You made a lot of great points, right? Let's say I'm, I'm at the enterprise. I understand that culture eats strategy for breakfast. I still got to deliver results quarter after yeah. quarter. And I've spent a lot of time and resources on building my culture, just got out of a pandemic. And, you know, we, we're, we're trying to return to profits. And then this thing, AI, comes into the, the foray uh, just eight months ago. Largely, like, the, the the things that people are excited about in AI have existed. But in the last eight months, things have really taken a turn. Yeah. With that, you know, I'm looking at it. AI, uh, like if I'm looking at the the generative AI side, a lot of it is is, is party tricks uh, to me as an organization. I'm seeing it. I'm asking my team, can it do this? And and to your point on the 80% of failure rates, that it's just not happening. It's not clicking. I, as an executive, don't want to bring that into the boardroom just yet. I know it's a priority, but what are some of the areas for us to really understand it? Because to to to, to just be quietly frank, the moment of AI and generative AI, it seems like it's a startup game. It doesn't feel like it's an enterprise game or we haven't met that wave of enterprise really catching their strides with AI. I mean, again, it's very early, but I'm curious your take on that. I think this is a matter for the board. I was recently at this board of directors summit, uh, which was all around what should the board strategy be when it comes to AI and generative AI? And it's very much top of mind for most board members right now because it really is mainstream, right? When ChatGPT came out, it became the fastest growing app of all time. It is something you're seeing. It's something you can touch. It's something you can play with. So what I've been saying to, to leaders is you have to be curious. You have to interact with this technology and you have to start experimenting. I agree with you. I think... Right now, we're at the beginning of it. We haven't really figured out how we're going to use this technology, where it's going to be transformative. But if you're not experimenting, you're going to fall behind. I mean, it's similar with the internet, right? If you think of the companies who started to experiment in the early days with the internet, they were so far ahead. Sure, it wasn't delivering value for the first few years, but they were ready when that technology matured that they could actually bring it on board. They knew about it. It was integrated into different parts of the organization. They weren't playing to catch up. So my advice is, this is a, a matter for the board to be discussing. And it's a, something the CFO needs to think hard about, like how much of the budget can I put on this? If I were implementing generative AI in its current state, you know, you you can see some really large transformative efforts occur in the marketing sense, like all the categories yeah. that are marketed. I mean, like it's very easy to, to come up with a plan for that. I don't know every single company, but one of the strategies that I would recommend would be to take, you know, you have to build that AI team, as you mentioned, yeah. but that AI team, the critical component is the data, like the data scientist or the data engineer or someone in a data role. Would it make sense for you to just have a data person go to each department, look at the, the look at what the congruence is, what the congruence is, and start to say, here's some of the experiments? Or do you think each team should make their own experiments and bets? Um, because that's kind of where you're going to start to build that that culture and that strategy from that you would take to the board, in my opinion. It actually comes down to what Michael was saying earlier around the culture piece. Uh, and and the way it sort of comes down to that is how data driven is your culture? If you have an extremely data-driven culture, then you can go for this embedded model. So if you look at places like 
Amazon. Uh, Meta recently did a major restructuring where they basically moved to this embedded uh, model where all their data scientists, AI experts actually sit within each of the business units and they sort of go through and and find those problems. And then, you know, they can you can create a task force across the different business units to find those uh, applications of generative AI. But if you don't have a culture that's very data-driven, that understands AI, having that centralized team can be really helpful because they can work with each other and you have sort of enough people that can go from problem to problem. But the one thing I would add to that is, this is again coming back to what I was saying earlier, which is you need a business leader that understands the data science, the AI, and the business problem so they can help actually do that translation and, and really find those opportunities. But, you know, I would encourage every team right now, and this is actually something I've been hearing from many companies that I've been speaking with, they're all trying to find those experiments that they can have with generative AI. Uh, most of them tend to be sort of internal facing, really trying to help their employees do, do a better job because right now, because of hallucination and other things, it's a little bit too risky to, you know, maybe expose uh, your customers to conversations with, versions of ChatGPT. Uh, so, you know, that's something companies are staying away from. You know, we have a really interesting question from Twitter from Arsalan Khan, who's hitting on this exact point, because he's saying that, as, as you just mentioned, Yoff, that many organizations are most are looking at generative AI internally. And he's saying, what about uh, partnering with external narrowly focused companies, for example, yeah. uh, AI with cybersecurity, AI for cybersecurity by partnering with with ISPs. So, as an organization is looking to implement AI, how should they be thinking about their partnership strategy? The first one is: What is sort of your time frame? Are you hoping to deliver something within the next few weeks or are you okay if you take your time, right? If you want to deliver something quickly, then you absolutely need to partner with another organization. The second pillar is really the technical expertise and the know-how. There aren't that many people who are experts on generative AI. Uh, and there's a lot of people right now who have watched a couple of YouTube videos and are calling themselves uh, Gen AI experts, but they're not, right? So you have to be really careful about that. So here, for most organizations, it's really hard for them to recruit enough experts to do this internally. So I think in the short term, you're going to find that partnering might be the best way to go when it comes to the skill portion of it. And then sort of the third pillar... Um, is really around the complexity of the problem you're trying to solve. Is this something that an external organization can provide uh, a solution which is sort of compatible with what you're doing uh, and you can just sort of plug into it? Or do you have like a really complex nuanced problem? If you have a really complex nuanced problem, then an external partner unless they are willing to give you this, you know, amazing white glove service where they're going to just rewrite everything for you, th that might not be the way to go. So those are sort of the three pillars. And I think, I mean, I don't think there's anything new here. This is sort of the typical do, do we buy versus build debate that, you know, strategy classes have been having and, and companies have been thinking about for many years. So it's the same ideas here. Given the nature of these projects, especially generative AI, again, coming back to your initial point where the outputs are indeterminate, yeah. 
how do you recommend that organizations evaluate the success of these projects? It seems tr much trickier than traditional business process software. This comes back to understanding uh, the impact or the potential impact of a project. And one of the things I always encourage people to do is to think of the if, then, buy, because hypothesis, which basically says, if I have this project, then this outcome will be improved by X percent because, and then here is my evidence. And in that moment, you think really carefully about what you're trying to transform. When it comes to AI, there are broadly speaking sort of two big outcomes that people are tracking. The first one is just pure engagement and usage, right? Are people actually using the AI solution? Are they going to it to help them improve their job, to help them whatever it's supposed to do? Are they using it? And then the second one is the financial one, right? And this could be, it could be revenue, it could be, is it cutting costs, it could be, uh, is it increasing sales, right? Whatever it is actually supposed to do, is it actually doing it? So first you want to identify, right, how you're going to measure success and you have the engagement part and then you have the actual, like, financial aspects of it. And then the next part is you have to run some sort of experiment. Now, if you're doing an external facing project, if you're someone like Netflix, you can very easily experiment because you've got a million or a billion customers. You give some of them the new tool, some of them you don't give access to a new tool, and then you see, is it actually driving uh, your KPIs and your business metrics? When it comes to internal facing projects on your employees, that experimentation becomes a little bit trickier. So you have to do it sort of not as, maybe not quite as the, you know, traditional clinical trial of experimentation. But again, you want to have that experimentation mindset and that desire to really measure the impact of it. It's tricky, but it is doable. I want to go back to Arsalan Khan's question, actually, because it's a very interesting question. And I think that when you consider partnering, like in the traditional sense, like if I have a company and I partner with someone on cybersecurity, I, I, I'm omitting myself, obviously, of some of those problems because I have a partner that can share in that responsibility. But if things were to go wrong, you know, there's things that I can also blame on that partner, like liability, or we can have a postmortem and, and figure that out. The thing that is fascinating here with AI is there's a lot of regulation that is yet to happen. Some of that regulation is 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 very scary. Um, as when you think about how fast and just the exponential growth of AI, especially generative AI as it stands today. And a lot of the partners or a lot of the companies that you would partner with, yeah, they're very young. They're, some of their biggest deals are happening yesterday, right? And I mean, even today, as we're recording this, uh, Hugging Face just raised, you know, uh, the, just had their raise just this morning. It's like, okay, and how many people are using Hugging Face to train their, their data sets and things of that nature? These are the players that you have to work with. And they're not, I mean... When it comes to sharing the responsibility, it's going to be very hard if I'm at a very large enterprise to say like, oh, we had this 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 unfortunate calamity occur. Uh, we were working with this partner. You know, they're going to they're going to take some of that blame. I don't think that's going to cut it. So what like what's your what's your take there? Like, where does the responsibility fall when we know that 80% of these projects fail and, and, and failure in the enterprise uh, leads to oftentimes lawsuits. This is very deeply connected to the notion of trust that I mentioned earlier, because an another one of the challenges, if you are partnering is, 
uh, it can be quite tricky, especially if it's in an internal facing product to actually get your employees to adopt it. Right, because people don't trust AI, they're worried that it's going to take their jobs, um, so they do, just don't want to use it. Um, and and this is where sort of my framework for trust in AI, I think, it's really helpful, and it's very connected to your question for it. So the way to think about trust here is it has three elements. You have trust between the human and the algorithm. This is is the algorithm interpretable? Is it transparent? Is it privacy preserving? All these typical ethical considerations that you have around the AI. The second one is: Do you trust the developer? Right? Do you trust the person, team, or organization that actually built what you're going to be using? And Q, that's kind of what you're getting at here, which is when you're using this external partner, maybe you don't really trust them. Maybe they're not following best practices. Maybe they don't really, and they're not going to preserve your data in a way that's uh, suitable for you. Um, so this is something that's really important you have to think about. And then the third piece of trust is actually trusting the processes, which is sort of the organizational trust. This is essentially how do you handle things going wrong? Who's to blame, right? All of these things need to be agreed upfront. And it becomes really tricky when you're partnering with an external organization to figure out, okay, the algorithm recommended X. That was the wrong thing, but none of the employees overruled it. So we just lost $10 million. Who's to blame? Right. And you can't, you can't do a post-mortem on that. You have to figure that out before you've even deployed this, right? Because then you don't really have trust. So that's how I would think about it. That's difficult, right? When I mean, some of the negative sides of these partners, right, are like, you look at OpenAI. Uh, I, I believe in Sam Altman and his ability to fundraise, but we also have to realize that some of the costs that have been shared at which it, it, when it is just taking to maintain even chat GPT, it could potentially lead them to uh, a bankruptcy or, you know, them yeah. being insolvent. So when you know that, and that's something that is a, a fundamental question, what, how do how do I justify that to my board saying that they're the leading experts, but the leading experts, they're a startup, and it's not uncommon for startups to exist today and not exist tomorrow, even leading prominent startups. Just look at crypto for uh, a, a better reference point there. We had some incredible yeah. companies just that cease to exist today. How do I know when to get on this AI hype train and partner with some of these people so I can I cannot have that problem that you just described? It's something we faced in previous versions, not with AI, but with cloud, for example, right? Like right now, the big cloud providers are really big tech companies. Uh, but in the beginning, when you were trying to convince people to go to cloud, it was a bit like, what is this cloud thing, right? Should we really be investing in it? One of the big advices I would give organizations, and this is something that I've seen companies sort of having to backtrack a lot is when you do end up partnering, partner in a way that makes you agnostic to the person you're working with in a way that you can sort of, if that company fails, you build your system in a modular way where you can just, you know, pick another company, right? Because for every problem you're looking at right now, there are about 20 startups trying to solve it. So sort of the high level uh, solution here that I would encourage organizations to have is own all of the individual pieces of infrastructure and then just plug in that little piece of generative AI that you need in a way that you can just swap them out. And that also protects you because one of the things we've seen with cloud providers is if they lock you in, that price goes, goes up. 
right? And that's, so a lot of companies are now sort of backtracking and trying to be cloud agnostic in a lot of their uh, offerings, but it's really hard because if you moved everything to one of the cloud providers, it's hard to get off them. So I would, that's that's how one way I would really mitigate their risk is basically be like, yes, we're using them, but it's this tiny little piece of it. And if they fail, we get someone else to do it. This issue of trust is so important and complicated. In the past, trust with enterprise or business process software basically boiled down to, do we have confidence that the vendor is keeping our data safe in the cloud and no one is stealing our money, really is what it ultimately comes down to. Now we have all of these questions about the ethical use, the bias, and we have a question from Arsalan Khan on exactly this point. He says, if organizations are using AI to make important financial insurance decisions, how can consumers make sure that the algorithms aren't biased and the data is not skewed in these AI systems? Organizations don't share this yes yet yeah. so it lends so it becomes another layer of uh lack of trust or distrust for ai systems and the implications that flow from that if financial regulation does to some extent require you to be able to explain if if, if you're using algorithms for say lending decisions you need to be able to explain why that person was accepted or rejected for a particular loan. So there is a little bit of regulation in that. And the European regulations that are coming out or already out, the AI regulations, they're going to require this type of transparency and explainability for these important decisions. Um, I think what's going to happen is, uh, and Q was speaking about this, there's going to be more and more regulations around this. The win, we're going to need that transparency. We're going to need to have AI audits. So there's companies that are starting to do this where they basically go in, in addition to auditing a company's finances, they're going in and they're actually auditing their algorithms. They're checking for bias. They're checking for fairness. They're checking for privacy leaks and all of these things. And you're going to see more and more of that. And I mean, there's, you you essentially need to do these types of audits because algorithms have unintended consequences. Even the best designed one, and I'll give you a, a really fun example. So I was working with LinkedIn and we actually have a paper that came out about a year ago in science. Uh, and, and one of the things basically that we leveraged to write this paper was the fact that this algorithm on LinkedIn that recommended people you should connect with had this long-term unintended consequence that it actually the people that were using it who were expanding their network were applying to more jobs and were getting more jobs. So this algorithm was designed to improve, you know, grow your network, was actually helping you get more jobs. Now here, this was really beneficial, but you can imagine that these types of knock-on effects, because, you know, everything is really connected online, uh, they can actually be huge and they could be really, really negative. So you need to have these types of audits to capture these uh, unintended consequences. Now we have a very interesting question from Twitter from Elizabeth Shaw, who says, How should organizations choose the appropriate type of AI initiative, whether it's quote unquote regular or generative AI, and then how should they begin? And I'll qualify this by saying we're just about out of time and we could spend an hour talking about this, but I'll have to ask you to keep it really fast. It comes back to thinking about impact and feasibility. 
you have to make sure that it, for the impact that it's aligned with your strategy, uh, it's going to deliver real value and you expect it to deliver real value. And then the feasibility is really, you're going to be able to do it. And one thing I will say about impact and feasibility is uh, researchers and some of my colleagues, Jackie Lane and Karim Lakani, have shown that we're really bad at confounding the two. So we tend to think that things that are high impact are high feasibility and vice versa, which is not true. So what I would encourage you is to try to disentangle those and then find the projects which are truly high impact and high feasibility and then go after those ones. Very, just as a very quick follow-up between generative AI and traditional AI, how do you choose? The big difference is that generative AI is a more general tool. Um, and I think it's you, you have to look at the problem. There's no sort of right answer or, or clear framework uh, for when one is going to be far superior to, to the other. Uh, traditional ML is really, really good at predictions. Generative AI is really good at having sort of human-like conversations. So if the problem you're working on is this type of human-like conversation, generative AI is the way to go. If you want pure predictions on whether Michael is going to buy this product today, you probably want to use uh, traditional AI. But the other interesting thing that's happening is generative AI can actually help you build traditional AI. So now generative AI is becoming a tool for developing traditional AI, which I think is also really fascinating. I want to ask you some questions about two enterprise companies that I find super fascinating in this space that have deployed both traditional ML and generative AI. So the, the first company I'm going to touch on is in NVIDIA. We talked about them earlier, but you know they've done a great job of being very nimble. So they were their chips have been used in everything from automotive to gaming to now uh, AI more broadly in both generative and ML. But one of the things that really shocked me in the enterprise and I'm curious your takeaways from is Meta. So Meta is largely, they've been on the press circuit for the last you know five, six years, and it hasn't been that great. But if you look at the last year and you look at what they're doing at Meta AI, they're actually doing phenomenal as far as some of the announcements, even their most recent one, uh, Seamless, or they did one this morning. I haven't read the paper, but they did Seamless M4T the other day, a uh, hundred languages that we can translate into uh, seamlessly. Now they've got you know a coding uh, LLM that they've that they've adopted Llama for. Why is Meta winning in AI right now? I'm curious your take on that. One of the things that we've seen in previous waves of technology, and we saw it with uh, uh, with Google's um, open sourcing, Chrome open sourcing, multiple other technolo technologies, they sort of became the foundation that everyone built on. What happened with generative AI is that a lot of companies were sort of doing this in closed door because I think they believed that this the ability to train these models is what's going to give them the competitive edge. And they were worried about open sourcing them. And Meta was actually a little bit on the flip side of it. They've always open sourced some stuff, but they were a little bit behind on this generative AI. But they had this strategy that we're going to just open source everything in the hope that everyone's going to build on top of them. Now, right now, we don't really know if that's the if that's what's going to happen we're in the stage where it could or it might be just too costly to really train these models any further and you just kind of use the default so it doesn't really matter so i don't know i don't really i think time will tell zuckerberg acting more like an entrepreneur in the startup sense is helping them uh right now that's what you're you're gleaming 
I think they have amazing AI leadership. So if you look at some of the leaders in AI, they are the world experts in that area and they have a strong commitment to open source. So I think you're seeing sort of that influence. Um, but I think Meta also realized that they were going to fall behind if they didn't try to do this open sourcing um, because they didn't really have, they're not really set up in a way that's going to uh, monetize this really easily, right? If you look at someone like Google, they can monetize this pretty easily through their search. They're basically redesigning how search works with them. You look at OpenAI, that's essentially what they're designed to do. So those companies are like, oh, this is going to be my core. For Meta right now, it's unclear. Like having a chatbot in WhatsApp, you know, that's not really going to add that much value to WhatsApp. So they're going for this open source. Maybe they'll become the foundation that everyone builds on, and then they can figure out how to really monetize that later. I think that's the strategy that they're going after. But really interesting space, and it's great to see how it's evolving. You're an operations professor at the Harvard Business School. So give us your advice for of the patterns you've seen that make AI projects succeed or fail. Give us the top three and really fast. At a high level, what you have to remember is that a project is not just a single entity. It goes through five distinct steps. It goes through the selection, the development, the evaluation, the adoption, and the management. And you have to look at each of these pieces individual, individually and really try to optimize for it. And that's really how you'll be successful. You can't just think of a project as from start to finish, break it down, focus on each of the parts of it and really try to optimize each individual process. And don't forget the management and auditing piece that often gets neglected. Q, you know, it strikes me that Yav's advice to optimize each piece, of course, makes sense. But Without the expertise of how to optimize, it's like, okay, what do we do? There's a lot of research happening in each of these stages to try to help companies figure out how to really optimally do it, right? In the development, we talked about the AI factory. In the evaluation, we talked about experimentation. In the adoption, we talked about my framework for trust in the algorithm, in the developer, in the processes, and then in the management. There's a whole slew of uh, tools out there to help with this. We're out of time, Yav, but we, we got, we'd love to have you back, man. There's a lot to be discussed here. With that, a huge thank you to Yav Bajanov. He's a professor at Harvard Business School. Yav, thank you for, for being here. And, and as Q says, we hope you'll come back. Thank you. And of course, a huge thank you to my co-host for this episode, Q Harrison Terry. Q, it's always awesome to see you and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Now, before you go, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button on the CXO Talk website. Check out our newsletter. We'll send you our upcoming shows, and we want you to be part of this community. Thank you so much, everybody. I hope you have a great day, and we'll see you again next time.